0: Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 38, Only One. Now, this episode is part two of the debate that began in uh, last episode, episode 37. Um, and so I'm not going to go into any sort of monologue or play a promo for another resource or anything. We'll just jump right back into the the debate. Um, but just to catch you back up, just remember that in part one, we heard my friend Mike's opening argument affirming the proposition that the Son eternally pre existed the incarnation with the Father. After his 20 minute opening argument, his opponent James Anderson gave his 20 minute opening argument denying that the Son eternally pre existed with the Father. Mike then had 15 minutes to rebut James, and James had 15 minutes to rebut Mike. It was at that point that I asked them if they needed a break before cross-examination, and they said they didn't, so we moved right into cross-examination, which began with James asking Mike the questions that you're going to hear right now. Uh, I've got the, the timer set for five minutes. And James, if you would begin with your first five-minute cross-examination of Mike. Okay, Mike.
1: Yeah. You there? Okay. Um, question. In Second Corinthians five and nineteen, God was in Christ. In your view, which person is in Christ there?
2: Uh, well, the title God, uh, generally in the New Testament refers to, uh, the Father. Um, so I would say, uh, not, you know, having the context right in front of me, I would say that that was the Father. Okay.
1: Um, some scholars, many scholars are saying that the term Father is a circumlocution. It's a figure of speech. John uses it as a way. The term Father in the Gospel of John is uh, just another word for God. It's a different way of expressing the relationship of Father and Son. Um, so I'm saying that God himself was in Christ. I don't need to specify that it was one person or another. But it was simply God in Christ. Um, what would you consider a proof text, second question, of an ontological trinity? Or your trinity that you see three divine persons before the cosmos? What, what text would prove that? There's a,
2: uh, well as I said in my opening statement, the Trinity is a doctrine that satisfies the totality of the Bible. It is not a doctrine that we can pick up from a few scattered verses, but we get it from the entire summation of progressive revelation and ultimately, uh, revealed as James White, the eminent scholar and apologist, says, between the testaments. In the incarnation of the Son, uh obviously in the baptism of the Son, we see the Father, we see the Son, uh the Father speaking over the Son and so forth. It's really a summation of the totality of scripture. There really isn't any one proof text.
1: Yes, yes. Uh I would agree. I would agree. Um Isaiah 46 and 9 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none other. I am God, and there is none like me. There is no one like me, the NRSV says. Um, who is speaking there in Isaiah 46 and 9? And if it's a person of the Trinity, which one can say there is no one like me?
2: Uh, well, Yahweh is speaking there. And I can't go beyond what the scriptures say. As Paul well, says, you that... don't go beyond what is written. So I'll, yes. I'll leave it. Where the scripture
1: lays it. Well, I, I agree. But would you would you say there that all three are speaking then? If it's Yahweh and Jesus is Yahweh, the Father is Yahweh, the Holy Ghost is Yahweh.
2: Well I would speaking corporately. I would say again that uh, the Bible doesn't give us that information, and okay. so I'm not going okay. to go beyond what the text actually says.
1: Okay. Now let me ask you one another question. It seems like the way I'm understanding I feel like there's some eternal subordination that's going on, if there is an eternal distinction of persons between the Father and Son, then isn't, it, isn't the Father eternally superior and the Son in, eternally inferior? How would you work that? How do you see that, in your view?
2: Well, personally, uh, I, I would say yes, there is an eternal distinction of persons, not beings. I believe I misspoke, if that's in fact what I said. But uh, we see an economic, a temporal subordination in uh, the period of Christ's humiliation, um, some Trinitarians understand that subordination, uh, that functional subordination, to be an eternal one. I don't. I don't see any text that would lead me to uh, to understand that. And since John 17:5 is in the imperative, I, you know, that really doesn't uh, give me any basis. But the subordination that is in the New Testament that we read of is a subordination that is purely in function and and not an ontological subordination. Uh, the okay. son remained in the form of God while he was in the form of a slave being born in the likeness of men. He did not give up his deity. He simply limited it according to uh, humanity. 30 seconds. Okay. Uh, which person fathered the son? Well, the term... The term Father is a term that is relational. Um, so when you say Father, the Son, it was the Holy Spirit that overshadowed Mary. Um, I don't know that I would use the term Father there uh, because the Bible doesn't.
1: So God's title as Father has no relationship to the actual bringing in of the Son, the Holy Spirit?
0: That's time. Okay. Uh, you can revisit that question in, in your next cross-examination. No problem. Okay, uh, Mike, you now have five minutes to cross-examine James.
2: Uh, thank you. Uh, James, deists, Shia Muslims, Bahais, and certain Hindus believe in an impersonal God. Is the God of the Bible personal or impersonal?
1: He's personal. He's declared himself to be so.
2: Okay, thank you. The Apostle John states in John 1-1c that the Word was God. Mm-hmm. Is the Word, therefore, personal or impersonal? Personal. Okay, in your article entitled Pre-Existent Christology in Certain Passages, it stated that, quote, the Logos is the plan or unexpressed thought with God. Now, you just told us that the Logos is personal. How then can you tell us that the Logos is an unexpressed thought and also say that the Logos is personal, as these are obviously self-contradictory assertions?
1: Well, I wouldn't say my words, uh, my words are an... I I did say that, but I I think I did uh, define Logos uh, even more in that article. I think that's like a 30-page article. Um, However, the word is personal uh, by the very fact that it is uh, God himself um, acting and moving among us. That's what I would say.
2: So the, the word is an unexpressed thought, but it is also God himself?
1: no it's not an unexpressed thought it's uh actually the word there is can mean unexpressed and expressed thought but this is um this is the self expression of God it's an expression of God it's god okay. acting that's the way it's normally used but, in the old Testament from my but in my...
2: that article you stated that the word is the plan or unexpressed thought with God and you said that more than one time in our article so is well, the word the unexpressed plan or thought with Thought with God, or is the word God Himself? Because you're saying two different things.
1: Yes. It? Well, the word, the word, the actual meaning of, to the Greeks, word did include reason, plan. It did include that. Yep. But right. it also it included the un, the unexpressed thought in the mind, and it also included the verbal, spoken thought. So it includes both.
2: Okay. Thank you. You stated in that same article that the word was not literally the complete sum of God, but with God and part of God. Sure. Sure. Isn't the Apostle's declaration that the Word was God and your assertion that the Word was part of God contradictory?
1: No, I'm not saying he's a part. I think I said part of God, part as in he's in the makeup of God. Um, I think you'd have to say that the Trinity, the persons are within each other, part of each other. It's not uh, – they're not separate, distinct, operating, independent. Um, but the okay,
2: Word was – okay. I'm sorry. Uh, you stated in that same – article that the, uh, excuse me, my, my mistake, in another article uh, you wrote entitled Musings on Christology and Pre-Existence, you wrote, quote, the Father himself was incarnated through the womb of a human woman. However, in John 1.14, we read that it was the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Mm-hmm. Which was it? Was it the unexpressed thought that was incarnated? Or was it the Father that was incarnated?
1: Well, I'm saying Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. So there's uh, – from that aspect, the deity that was in Christ is Yahweh. So it is God, um, and you can't, we can't really separate that. And I'm not going to say, no, Jesus is one-to-one with the Father. I'm not saying I – I will say Jesus is the Father incarnate, or Jesus is the Father manifest in the flesh. But Jesus is not the Father in equivocal sense because Jesus is also uh God manifest in flesh. So, uh, the, the term "father" to me is a circumlocution. It doesn't describe. I don't. I don't see it as very you, binding.
2: Right, but you said the father was incarnated through the womb of human women. Yes, the uh, deity
1: was. There's no other deity besides the Father. John 17:3, the oh, only true okay. God.
2: So, so only the Father is divine. So therefore, the Son is not divine.
1: Yes, the Son is divine. He is God in flesh. Okay. That's why he could say the Son created uh, the Son. Everything was created okay, by the Son. Right. He's looking back in retrospect, saying this is God. It was created by Him.
2: So was it the Father or the unexpressed thought that was incarnated, crucified? Because you uh, said the Father himself was incarnated through the womb of a human woman.
1: Uh, I would say... Uh, the fa- I, when I'm, I'm using theological terms to say the Father was manifest in the flesh. Um, the, the, the most explicit statements of Scripture are God was manifest in the flesh. You can't make that be the Son because the Son of God is never mentioned in First Timothy, and the antecedent to he there um, is God. And so God was manifest in the flesh. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, and all no, the not, fullness not, of deity uh, was in Christ.
0: I'm sorry, guys. That's time. Sorry. No, that's okay. Okay. Uh, Okay, so uh, I'm going to reset for five minutes, and James, you can do your cross examination of part two. Okay, Um,
1: Mike, what is all the member as each member? I'm fascinated by Trinitarianism. I really am. I've been studying it. I've tried to be very objective in in approaching theology. I told you in an email. Um, I came to a crisis in my life. I tried to look at everything very objective, and so I have. Um, but as, as each person of the Trinity, are they each um, – are all members of the Trinity omnipotent? They're all omniscient?
2: Uh, yes, the Father, Son, and Spirit are consubstantial with one another, and they each uh, exhaust what it means to be God.
1: Do they have their
2: own mind? Each person uh-huh. have their uh-huh. own mind? The Bible doesn't use terms like mind. Uh I mean it would seem maybe that it communicates that as much in anthropomorphic language. But um I'm not really going to venture out into those waters because that's okay. more of a, how, would a, how would
1: how would how uh, would a person communicate without a mind?
2: Well, a human person wouldn't, but we're talking about God. So
1: Okay. Okay. Um Did the Old Testament prophets, patriarchs, such as Abraham, did they believe, did they die believing in a trinity?
2: I would say that the Old Testament patriarchs were privy only to the revelation that was provided to them. Uh, We see that the Bible is a progressive revelation, that the totality of God's character and nature was not delivered in Genesis or in a period during the Old Testament, but rather it was delivered from Genesis to Revelation. And so I wouldn't expect them to believe in a New Testament revelation because it was never given to them.
1: Okay, I would agree. I would agree. Um, Why is God the Father not ever called God the Father until the New Testament?
2: Because the the personal distinctions of, of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are New Testament revelations. Uh, okay. We do see those kinds of distinctions made in scarce places in the Old Testament, but through the New Testament's conception of the Old Testament.
1: Okay. You would say, would you agree that God is one what and three who's? Um, yes, yeah, that's, that's what I've I heard.
2: Suppose, I suppose you could say that, but... I, well, I want. I really as, do
1: want to. I want. I want to understand this point because I've thought this over. If we're saying God is one what in three whos, which I've heard a lot of Trinitarian apologists say, then at God's nature He's impersonal, but yet somehow in that impersonal being there is three persons. Well, I think I that God that, is a. Go ahead. I would
2: I would say that 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 God is one being who eternally exists in three um, co-equal persons. And so the what is the essence of God, and the who's are the persons of God, then sure, I, I guess you could say that, but I don't really feel that that is very helpful language, and it's certainly not biblical language. Okay,
1: okay. Um, in Matthew twenty-two, forty-two through 45, David's son and David's Lord it talks about Jesus as being David's son, David's Lord, um, Revelation 20-16 says he's a root and offspring. Hebrews 3, 1-6 says that Jesus is the builder of the house and the son in the house. Now, how can Jesus, and this is what the writer of Hebrews waxed eloquent on, how can Jesus be the sacrificial lamb, the blood of the sacrifice, the high priest who offers the sacrifice, the veil through which the high priest passes, and the heavenly judge who accepts the sacrifice, and there still be other persons to share those roles? because it seems like Jesus is filling all of those things.
2: Well, Jesus um, fulfills the titles prophet, priest and king. Um, he is the mediator, he is the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world, and he is also the um, intercessor for the saints and so forth. Pretty succinct. Uh, he is a you know, an infinite and eternal uh god. Who can fulfill any any qualification of any position?
1: Okay, that's good.
0: You've got thirteen seconds if you want to use them.
1: Okay. Um, how would you just explain the properties of the persons? You know, the, the unbegotten, begotten, and proceeding. What does that mean
0: to you? Um, well, father's I mean, unbegotten, the son's begotten. I'll, I'll let him. An- if it's all right with you, James, we'll let him answer your question shortly. Hey, no problem. Okay. No problem. No problem.
2: Uh, yeah, so uh, unbegotten, um, yeah, that's creedal language. Uh, I can tell you what begotten means, because we find that in Scripture. Um, begotten means, obviously, to, uh, I mean, depending on what word we're using for begotten, if we're using monogenes, it has one meaning. If we're using uh, genomenos, uh, it's another meaning. Um, creedal language, I, I think you have to uh, couch it in modern to understand, but, uh, you know, I, I guess that's as far as I can go with that, because without having a creed in front of me to look at that language in context, I'm not sure. Sure.
0: Okay. Uh, Mike, I've got the timer set for five minutes, and you now have that five minutes for your second cross-examination of James.
2: Okay. Uh, James. Um, yes, sir. John 1.18 and John 6.46 tell us that no one has ever seen God the Father. And yet a great many times in Scripture we see people uh, who are said to explicitly have seen God. Uh, Abraham saw God by the oaks of Mamre. Isaiah saw God in the temple. Jacob saw God. Gideon saw God. Manoah and his wife saw God, etc. So if no one has seen God the Father, as John 1.18 and John 6.46 states, who did these people see?
0: They
1: they saw the manifestation of God that was permanent and perfect in Jesus Christ. They didn't see the, the actual substance of God. Um, God appeared to many people in the Old Testament, including in Genesis 18. He appeared to Abraham and Sarah, the Lord, Yahweh, did, Um and Theophanies. But those were temporary manifestations, whereas in Jesus, God himself, in the flesh, in my opinion, uh, he is God in human form, so we do see God in that sense. We don't see the, the absolute essence of God. Uh, but Jesus is declaring him, uh, he has made him known, he has explained him, he has told him out.
2: Um, okay, I understand. So, but these people, uh, uh, scripture tells us have seen God. Uh, mm-hmm. Isaiah says, I saw Jehovah high and lifted up in the temple. Did he yes. see Jehovah or did he not see Jehovah?
1: And Isaiah, 6
2: and 10? 6-1, uh, or 6-5, okay. whichever you prefer.
1: Yeah, yes, he did see Jehovah. He saw Yahweh. Okay, uh, I
2: believe thank that. you. Thank you. Um, with that in mind, in John 12, after mm-hmm. a quotation from Isaiah 6, John says of the Son in verses 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Speaking of the Son, according to John, who did Isaiah see?
1: Um according to John or Isaiah, what'd you say? According to yeah. John it was Christ. John says it's Christ.
2: Yeah. I, okay. Uh, so you would say Christ meaning the Son?
1: Uh yes, sure would. The, okay, son is so, Yah- the Son is Yahweh.
2: Right. So you're saying that the Yahweh that Isaiah saw was the Son, right?
1: Yes. And that in fact there's no room for any other person to be seated around that throne, I would say, based upon the text.
2: Yeah, okay. Uh, thank you. And so, because the Scripture tells us that no one has ever seen the Father, and yet we see many times, as I said, people have seen God, who did these people see, whether it was in a vision or not in a vision, as Isaiah saw?
1: Um, I think what Isaiah might have seen it was, would, have, would have been a vision. It could have been the glory of God. Um, he could have some type of vision, a prophetic vision. I, I doubt it was literal. Um, it okay. says, it says that the, whose train filled the temple. So whoever it was sitting on that one throne, that one person had a robe that filled the temple, okay, which wouldn't so, leave room for anyone else.
2: Uh, Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 through 8 says, If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly, and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. According to John one eighteen, no one has seen the Father. Who did Moses see? Who did Isaiah see?
1: Uh, I would say he saw Jesus sitting on the throne. I mean, that Jesus, we don't believe. One of the Pentecostals believe that Jesus uh, is uh, eternally existent. He did so exist They
2: saw the Son.
1: Yes, okay? they saw that the the Son is the Yahweh, the Father is the Son, Isaiah nine and six. Right,
2: right. So if they <clears throat> you 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 had I'm said, saying I'm saying
1: I'm telling you that Christ and Yahweh are the same.
2: Uh, okay, he, but no uh, one, if if they were the same though, and no one has seen the Father, how can that statement be true?
1: Uh because as John one eighteen says, John one and eighteen creates the distinction that Trinitarians are, and one of the Pentecostals have been battling over. It says the unique God. The, the subject-object distinction there is between spirit and flesh, God and humanness. That's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing God chose to, 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 to come, uh, reconcile the world through right. His I, Son. I'm not
2: talking about the monogamous Theos. I'm just talking about the fact that Scripture is replete with verses that tell us that no one has seen the Father. Sure yes. no
1: one has seen God right but i'm not i'm saying that that means right. uh we haven't seen the father we haven't seen god's pure divine essence that's why the one seated upon the throne will be jesus because he is the image the image creature
0: okay that's time uh now at this point uh do either of you need to take a break before i present my questions or do you guys want to continue right now i'm good uh, okay now it's my turn to set the timer for myself. <laughs> I'm going to set the timer for 10 minutes, and I'm going to begin with Mike. Uh, the first question I have for you, Mike, is from a listener named John. He wrote me asking, if one correctly understands the Trinity but rejects it in favor of the Oneness view, is it still possible for such a one to be saved?
2: Um, if one understands the Trinity and rejects it in favor of Oneness Right. um I would say that that person has... Uh, Turn their back on on the clear revelation of Scripture, and and I would say that they are in, in grave error. And the Bible tells us that if you do not have the Son, you do not have the Father. And so, according to the Son's own words, I would say, no, they're they're, they're unfortunately they would be a lost person. So, you, would, so, so,
0: so based on the text that the, the if you do not have the Son, then you do not have the Father. That's what, what you would base your opinion that somebody who correctly understands the Trinity be, but rejects it is not saved or would you point to other passages? The,
2: well? I mean, obviously this is under the assumption that the person really understands what they're rejecting in the face of the biblical evidence. Okay. Uh, there are also other verses like John eight twenty four. You do not believe that I am, uh, you have died in your sin. You'll die in your sin. Uh, you know, in John chapter 17, Jesus connects the knowledge of himself and the father, uh, to salvation. Um, you know, if you believe that, uh, the son didn't exist prior to the incarnation, then you don't, and he wasn't with the father, then you really don't believe he's the I am. If he was an idea in the mind of God, then you obviously don't believe he is the I am.
0: Okay. I do, I do want to point out though, just to be fair that, um, uh, James has specifically said that he believes that Jesus is Yahweh. Um, I just want to point that out just cause I want to try to be fair. I don't want it to be able to be said that, uh, <laughs> that, yeah, uh, no, that, I, I'm, that I, I'm unfair. I,
2: I did include this.
0: Okay. Um, the next question is from a friend of mine and fellow podcaster, Phil Nasons. Um He wrote me saying, "If the identity of God is so important, why is the Son of God never mentioned in the Old Testament?" Now, now I think that Phil's question is important because because um, uh, James has touched on this as well, as as did his friend Jason Dooley. I think is maybe how you pronounce his name. Um, he, he writes it this way. He says, "It is not until the New Testament that we find any distinctions in reference to God and the emergence of Father-Son terminology. Why would God fail to reveal Himself as Eternal Son until the New Testament? If the Son is an eternally divine person Yahweh eternal and essential being. So, so Mike, why don't we see in the Old Testament any distinction between God the Son and God the Father if both have existed eternally?
2: Well, if we were to read the Old Testament in isolation without any knowledge of the New Testament, I, I could see why someone would say that or make that argument. But when we read the Old Testament and New Testament together, and particularly the Old Testament, uh, the New Testament's conception rather of the Old Testament we see that the Son is all over the place. I mean, we can turn to the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and see that that was the Son of God, that the Son was indeed active incarnation. We can go to Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews 1, as we talked about. Uh, we can go... Okay. You know, one, three, any, anywhere,
0: really. I understand. So, uh, if, I want to press you on this a little bit further. Um, so what you're saying is that the New Testament reveals to us the distinctions that were present in the Old, even though they weren't maybe explicit or, or something along those lines. But, but, but let's assume for a moment that you're right. Um, while choosing not to reveal this relationship explicitly from the beginning, uh, during that time, God was at the same time stressing to his people that he's only one God, contrasting that with the false pluralities of gods in other religions. So the question I have for you is, in doing that, while choosing not to reveal his plurality explicitly, did, didn't he lead his people to believe in a unipersonal or unitarian God? And thus wasn't he at least, or, or at best, sloppy and at worst deceptive?
2: I know, because I don't believe there is any text in the Old Testament that would lead anyone to believe in and of, them, in and of itself that God is unipersonal. People would have to bring that assumption to that text. The only thing that we can derive from the Old Testament is uh, monotheism. Okay. And uh, in, in addition to that, I would say that we have to understand that the Bible is a progressive revelation. God didn't give us the totality of man's redemption in the Old Testament. We had to also wait for the revelation of the Of the New Testament to get that knowledge, and in so much we had to do that same very thing, uh, to get the uh, totality of the revelation that God has delivered us of Himself.
0: Okay. Uh this is from an emailer named Manuel, uh who I believe that you've got some familiarity with. He wrote me saying, Since Mike's version of Jesus makes him a hybrid, a mix of God and man with no distinction, a new species or hybrid of neither man nor God, with no human spirit, but a divine spirit only. Oh my goodness. How is his Jesus able to redeem mankind as our kinsman redeemer that Ruth spoke of?
2: Um yeah, I, I, I do know, know this individual. <laughs> um, that's a that's a pretty convoluted and loaded question. Yes, I would say that uh Jesus's two natures, his human nature and his divine nature, are not a hybrid mix, but rather they are separate but held by the one person of the Son. Um, the Son existed in the form of God, and then took upon himself human flesh. Uh, I'm a Chalcedonian Christian. I affirm the definition of Palestine, and and we affirm what the Scripture teaches that these natures were not mixed. So I'm not really sure where Manuel has gotten the idea that uh, I believe in some mixture of natures, but uh, I certainly don't, and, and therefore his question doesn't really apply to me.
0: Okay. Did, did Jesus? Ha- he he claims that you say Jesus had no human spirit. Is that true?
2: Oh, absolutely not. Uh, no. I, I wanna.
1: Can I speak up for um, uh, Mike here? Mike yeah, is but explicitly. I'm gonna pause the timer. Okay, Mike has explicitly said that he he does believe Jesus has a human spirit.
2: Okay. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a dualist, classic Christian dualist. Uh, Jesus, I've, heard, was, I've read him saying it with my own. I've read it my own eyes. Uh, Jesus is like us in in all respects, yet without sin, and I believe that that would include a human soul or spirit or whatever kind of language you want to couch the immaterial human aspect in. Um, I've defended that in, in, in published articles about that. So yeah, I certainly do affirm that Jesus had a human soul.
0: Okay. Now, but did he have to use Manuel's language, uh, did he also have a divine spirit? Did he have two spirits, one human and one
2: divine? Um <laughs> the the Bible doesn't the Bible doesn't use the word spirit in a unequivocal fashion. Um the, the the fellow who asked the question has to understand that when we speak of a human spirit, we speak of that uh, aspect of humanity in which the consciousness uh, rests. That eternal thing that is um, who we are that is not our flesh. Uh, but when we speak of the Spirit of God, we could be thinking of the Holy Spirit. Or we could be speaking of um, the incorporeal essence that is God. I mean, God is not a corporeal being. He is a spirit. And so to ask if Jesus had two spirits really misses um, the way the Bible uh, speaks about that word. I think
0: I understand. So you, you would say that he had a human spirit, but that he is a divine spirit. That's correct. Okay. Um, now, I had other questions prepared, but I'll, I want to go to some that I noted down instead during the course of this debate, um, because I've asked all the questions that were sent in to me. Uh so um if i understood james correctly what he argued was that in the um passage leading up to john 17:5 which was a key component of your argument um he speaks he 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 follows a model of prayer that was used in the old testament which speaks of something in the future as if it were now or even in the past um he even uh there in those passages talks about the hour both coming but also being now My question for you is, is, do you see that language, both in the Old Testament and and, and there in that passage, of something being in the future and now, um, as do you see that as uh, allowing the glory that he says he had with God in the beginning to also be speaking of something that was at the time future, but is now, in a certain sense? Absolutely
2: not, because what Christ is doing there is he's petitioning for something that he possessed in the past. It would be one thing if he was petitioning God for something that he's going to have in the future in some uh, ethereal verity, but he's talking about something that he actually had in the past, in the Father's presence. Uh, So no, I I don't see any license for that whatsoever.
0: Okay, uh, I've got a minute left, so there are two more I've got for you. The one is James also has pointed out, um, and he tried to press you on this, but I think he ran out of time. That Hebrews one five talks about uh, Jesus having been been begotten in a point in time. What does it mean that Jesus was begotten, the son was begotten at a point in time, if not um, the kind of begotten that we normally think of?
2: Well, there are several interpretations that one could bring to. That word in the context of Hebrews, we see in Acts chapter thirteen, verse thirty-three, that it's in the context of the resurrection. That in some sense Christ was begotten in the resurrection. Um, we could look at that. Uh, we could look at, you know, we could look at it in, in the sense of that. Obviously, he, the Son, was incarnated, um, as he is the uh, the divine Word, uh, and as an incarnated person, he would have to be begotten in the way that normal children are begotten.
0: Okay, I understand.
2: But as, as to his human nature, purely.
0: Okay. Nature. Last question, and you've got a very short amount of answer it. What does it mean that, uh, how, how does the fact that the Son is called the Father of Eternity or the Eternal Father in Isaiah, how is that not saying that he is in fact the Father?
2: Well, uh, it certainly doesn't say that he's the Father of the Son and um James would had to have made that connection for, for, for that to have made this point. Secondly, in Hebrew, it's Abiyah, the word father, um, precedes the word everlasting or, etern- or eternity. And this is a, uh, a type of Hebrew, Hebrew idiom. We see father of ga- gathering, father of strength and so forth. This is a way of communicating that some, someone is the possessor of something or the origin of something. Okay. And the word sem, uh, meaning name, when it is used in that kind of context, indicates that the names present or the titles present aren't intended as an identification of the subject, but a description of the subject. So, s- so, yeah.
0: Okay. Um, so now I'm going to switch over to James. James. Um, I'm going to start my timer now. James, I've only got one one question that was emailed to me for you. Uh, it's from, wow, I was yeah, surprised. <laughs> uh, and me too. From from an emailer named Michael. He said, Is the loving relationship we see between the father and the son a real personal loving relationship or is it an impersonal relationship between modes of existence?
1: No, I would say it is very personal. Uh, uh,
0: how, uh, how would you explain a personal re- uh, loving relationship between one person?
1: Um, well, actually what I would say is that all throughout the new testament we see a real man and a real god in relationship with one another and god in my estimation is conscious of himself existing in two different ways as god transcendent and then god uh in time and space in the incarnation and as as if uh, interpreting the, the the philippians passage kind of like the way mike does i know he disagrees with me um but i'm saying there was a self limitation uh a veiling of his glory he willingly, see, God determined to have a human experience. I believe that. And that's how he became a man. And he determined to have that experience. And so he grew. God grew. Can you imagine? Jesus is God, Chris, but he learned his alphabet.
0: Okay, so. so I,
1: I think, I think that God limited himself to experience humanity in such a way that we have a real genuine relationship between God and his son.
0: Okay. Um, I think we'll come back to that a little bit later. At this point, I'm going to start asking some questions that I've prepared. The first one that I have is, is it possible, uh, conceptually or philosophically speaking, apart from Scripture, uh, is it possible that God is triune in nature?
1: Um, A.D. A. Urshan in 1919 wrote a book, and he said that there is some inexplicable threeness, now, he refuted that as being three beings or three persons, but he was a, a very influential member, uh, a mover in the early oneness movement. But he did say a threeness. And oneness Pentecostals do not deny the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see these as, as essential roles in the plan of salvation.
0: I understand, but, but hold, let, me, let me clarify. Is, is, the, is the Trinitarian position possible were it not for Revelation?
1: If it, if it were not for revelation,
0: correct. If, if we didn't have revelation to go by, would it be conceptually possible that the, that, the God, that God is triune?
1: Well, I, I would I would say we could conceive of God as being uh, three persons. Uh, but it would have to match the data.
0: Agreed, agreed. So so if, if it is possible that God is triune, is it, is it also possible that the scriptures do in fact that teach, teach that God is triune, but that you and other Oneness Pentecostals are reading them incorrectly? I'm just asking if that's possible.
1: Well, sure, and it, but it could be the other way around. Agreed, well. absolutely. Okay, I just wanted to establish that. I agree, yes.
0: Um, so the next thing is you talked about no, I'm going to skip that one because I think that um, you, you answered that one already. So um, <clears throat> can you explain for us in Philippians 2, um, my, it, it, if I've understood you correctly, you've, you said that that passage is a reference to his earthly ministry. What happened during his earthly ministry, although you did admit that there are someone as Pentecostals who would see it as happening before then. But, yes. since he, but since you seem to hold to the position that what he's talking about is what happened during his earthly ministry, what is, at what point did Jesus, during his earthly ministry, become in the likeness of men?
1: Uh, I, that would have to be, in my in my view, that would have to be the incarnation uh, when he took on the form of a servant. In time, God received the form of a servant. That's what I would say.
0: Okay, but you said that that, that was the incarnation. That's when he took upon huma- himself humanity, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, but, but he connects that with the existing in the form of God, uh, uh, or, sorry, with, with, with what happened before that, the um emptying himself. In what sense, he says emptying himself uh, and being made in the likeness of man. In what sense could made in the likeness of man refer to the incarnation and yet not refer to him emptying himself prior to that?
1: Oh, I, I don't think, uh, just because you have two stanzas back to back like that that are referring to the likeness of man, the form of God, Hebrews... The Jewish thinkers were very um, adept at, at uh, juxtaposing stanzas of text, and especially Philippians too. This is a hymn; um, it was most likely sung aloud. And so they were praising God for Christ, and I don't think they would have ever excluded the humanity of Christ in that. So I, I really don't see a problem with it grammatically. Um, I listed a couple scholars, very very learned scholars, that that said you can interpret that, and there's really no grammatical reason not to.
0: Okay. Um, now, you mentioned, uh, I, what, what was it specifically said? Well, I don't remember. I'm just going to ask the question as I had originally prepared it. Um, so, you, would you agree that when, in John 4, 1 John 4, 8 and first John four sixteen, where it says that God is love, would, would you agree that God has eternally been love in whatever sense John means it here?
1: Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Now, For God knows nothing new.
0: Okay. Now, um... Who, who besides the father himself, is the object of the father's love?
1: Uh, creation, um, all of us, the Word. Okay. Um, the Bible. We can. We we personally can fulfill uh, loving each other simply by loving uh, ourselves, loving our neighbors as ourselves. So we have to love each other before we can love anyone outside of us. And so, I believe God has always been loving. I mean, just like God has always been a judge okay but, but that's but, a very bias if you think about it
0: okay but God's the judge okay but hold on a second because you're saying that the father loved creation um, yes. and and my understanding would probably be that you would say that before creation he was still aware that he was going to create creation and that in that sense he was able to have loved creation from all eternity but here's the thing doesn't that mean that in order to be expressing in order to express law, love something besides God the father has to has to Exist or be planned to exist, and doesn't that make God the Father dependent upon something other than Himself?
1: No, uh, God is completely in, uh, contained within Himself. He doesn't need anything. Um, I, I, I believe it's God's will. It was His decree to create. He 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 created everything through Christ. Um, he was the the second Adam. So I mean, I don't see. God loving us was just as real before He created the cosmos as it is now in
0: 2010. But saying it's just as real Eleven. is dif- is different from saying, had He chosen never to create anything, whom would He have loved?
1: Well, I, d- I don't know, but I, d- I do know one thing: we can't make God. We can't parallel God's existence with our human existence. God doesn't need to love anyone. I absolutely
0: agree, and that's that's, opinion. that's my opinion. No, I, I agree with you. I think that's exactly my point, is that, is that in order for God to exist as love, as loving, then something, then, then he must, in the existence of God himself, be able to express love. But if his love is toward creation, I, I think that you're saying he's dependent upon creation, even though you're not. But, 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 but.
1: but, I would say God is love. That's part of who he is and what he is. It's not necessarily an abstract concept outside of him, but I would say God is love. It's of his essence.
0: Okay. Um. Now, you you mentioned, you you talked about uh, the Logos um, and where it appears in the Old Testament, the word of Yahweh in places like Haggai uh, 1.1 and Ezekiel 38. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you agree that that we should look at the word of Yahweh that's used throughout the Old Testament in understanding John 1.1?
1: Yes, yes, okay.
0: sure. Now, in, in places such as Genesis 15, 1 and 4, Numbers 36 and 5, and many others, this word of Yahweh speaks, uh, that passage in Jeremiah I just mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. well, I didn't mention it, but is an example. Jeremiah 1.1 1, 1 says, the word of Yahweh came to me saying, and then many times this word of Yahweh cites or quotes Yahweh. Jeremiah yes. 1.15, for example, depicts the word of Yahweh saying, I am calling all of the families of the kingdoms of the earth, declares Yahweh. So here's my point. We have uh, the word of Yahweh in the Old Testament both uh, both being called God and speaking but also citing or quoting God so my question for you is when we understand John one one to also be saying that the word of God is God and yet is personally with God at the same time how is that why is that a problem?
1: Why is it a problem? <clears throat> because you're not just saying the word is personal. You're saying it's it's a, it's a person that's distinct from God. And usually the trans- interpret the term distinct to mean not the same as. So I, I can't go with that. I can't say God is separate persons. I just can't go with it.
0: Okay, but but the word of so John one says the word of God is God and with God, correct?
1: Yes, yes. Um,
0: and we see the word of Yahweh in the Old Testament, both speaking as God, but also refer mm-hmm. quoting or citing the God he he refers to. Um, mm-hmm. So how, how how does how does well, logos?
1: Yes, logos is a form of an agency, an agent um, during the Old Testament period. So was wisdom; it was an agency. It was God's dealing with humanity. Like if you'd asked those people in Jeremiah, you know, the logos had come, the word had come. Who was that? they would simply say it 's God,
0: yeah, I, I agree. The problem I think is that he, he cites God, um, but anyway let 's move on I've only okay, got a, a, what, a little maybe i 'm misunderstanding then that's all right um, now why I, God talking to God is that what you said God talking on behalf of god, but but let, let's move on um, ephesians three uh, 14 to 17, Jesus, uh, Paul prays that the Father would grant that Christ dwell in believers' hearts. And in John 14:23, Jesus says, We, that is he and his Father, will come to anyone who loves me and make our abode with him. How could both the Father and the Son dwell within the believer, particularly if the Father is his divinity or his divine nature and, and, and not the Son who is omnipresent?
1: Uh, well, I think we there, actually, there is no... Um in John 14, 23, there is no personal pronoun there. Uh, what it is is a verb, uh, er come, it's in the middle indicative uh, person, it's first person plural. Uh, and uh, our uh, is really not there either. It's actually our home. It's a noun, Monet, and that is in the feminine. So we can't use pronouns to count it. I think this is um, a way of expressing it, the emphasis, because he's already said <laughs> That uh, I'm going to come to you, the Holy Spirit's going to come to you, we're going to come to you. And there's only one way that the Father and the Son could live in our hearts. Because the Son, in, in spite of this verse, is a human, and he's a man. He has a physical body. So a physical body is not fixing to crawl into my chest. It has to be in a spirit form. That is how he has made our abode, his abode
0: with us. Okay. Um, in a spirit relationship. I understand. All right, well, that's all the time I have, and it's less than half of the questions I hope to ask. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So uh, with that, if do either of you need to take a break before we do our closing arguments?
1: No, I'm all good.
0: All right. Uh, James, uh, because you are denying the proposition, if you would begin your 10-minute closing argument uh, now, I'd appreciate it.
1: Okay. Uh, I want to uh, say I'm very thankful for being able to come on the show today. Thanks for Mike is, uh, is uh, treating me nicely, kindly. Um, I know we get on forums, and there's a lot of things that go on in forums. Um, I may have uh, expressed myself on the forums that may not have been as Christian as it should be. I want to apologize for that Um, because, I mean, I do disagree, but I think we need to agree as 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 godly people um, or disagree as as godly people. Um, But I'm simply advocating here today that God is a personal spirit being. And uh, if anyone wants to read anything, uh, Jeffrey Lamp, uh, his book, God is Spirit, get it from Oxford Publishing. He actually says that God as a personal spirit being is really the best model to understand God. Um, Jesus, I believe, is the incarnation of the Father. And we don't believe the eternal spirit of God is limited in time or space or to the human body of Jesus. or He's not just a merely a human nature, but it is God himself coming to live inside of us. And there's not a plurality of persons, but I believe the distinction rests, and John 1.18 helps prove this in my opinion, a distinction between spirit and flesh. In fact, in John two nineteen, Jesus says, uh, refers to his body in the neuter. He says, I will raise it up. Okay, so we have to be very careful about how we are signing uh, personages to pronouns. Second thing is, I want to know, uh, I want Trinitarians, where is the proof of an ontological trinity? I, that's what we Trinitarians need to work on, in my opinion. Because if the distinction between the Father and Son is in the Incarnation, such as we see in the prayers of Christ. If this proves an eternal distinction of persons, then I think it also proves uh, the Son is uh, in, internally inferior. I know there's a lot of wrestling with that. Michael disagreed with it. Um, I would also try to say that oneness reasoning is not circular, it's, we try to start with the Old Testament definitions of God and move forward. Try to maintain those consistently. We don't ignore it in the New Testament revelation, but we try to. You know, if we're going to learn Shakespeare, we learn ABCs, and we 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 see that as a way of helping us to understand the New Testament, and not allowing there to be. Um, um, ...a dramatic shift. God is always... God's Spirit has always been imminent in creation. So between the Old and New Testament, there was not a dramatic shift, even though there was a shift. I believe Trinitarian reasoning is more circular, uh, because the sole distinctions among the three persons of the Trinity are that the Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, and the Holy Spirit is proceeding. But when we ask anybody, any Trinitarian I've ever asked, to explain these properties... I usually get that it's a mystery. And simply saying, or, or they'll say that these are qualities which each person, which make the persons unique and distinct. But that is to, to assume what is, what has yet to be proven. Um, we don't devalue the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but we see these as the three supreme manifestations. They're necessary to the plan of salvation. Um, We believe that the the explanation of our plural pronouns, the way we explain those, are convincing to the Hebrews of the ancient and modern Jews. Uh, We're not saying they perfectly understood um, salvation because that's why they didn't accept Christ. But our definitions are are, uh, acceptable to them. Oneness does not ignore Greek grammar. For example in Granville sharps rule there it talks about um, having the in front of the nouns when it refers to different persons or place um, this is talking did have to mean different persons uh, are mentioned there um, in John chapter 8 does not uh, a second another witness does not require two divine persons Paul came to the church at Corinth in second Corinthians 13 and 1 three times and each of those was a witness John's in John 536 said that his works uh, his teachings were witnesses uh, the right hand of God we don't see these having to do with another person uh, but Luther Martin Luther and F.F. F. Bruce have, have said these are uh, symbolisms referring to authority and power it's symbolic um, in the tabernacle plan we see Jesus as a sacrificial lamb the blood of the sacrifice the high priest who offers the sacrifice the veil the heavenly judge Um, We see all these things as pointing to Christ. And the New Testament plural references for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, we see these are very important distinctions between God and man. We see these distinctions, but we see them as between the Spirit and flesh. We interpret them within time, and we don't try to place the distinctions eternally. We see no distinctions in the eternal nature of God. Um, this This is not a distinction within the Godhead, again, but it's between eternal... ...and uh, uh, the manifested God himself. First Timothy 2 and 5 shows there's one God and one mediator between God, man, and man, Christ Jesus. And in this is where we see our distinctions because there is a conceptual distinction between God and his transcendence and God as he's working in, in human hearts and lives today. Um, another comforter does not mean another person, but it means another relationship, another form, because Jesus is no longer dwelling with believers, but he's in the, fle- uh, in the flesh, but he's coming back to dwell with unbelievers in the Spirit. Um, and oneness does not teach that God is an unknowable entity, or what? Unitarians actually do when they tell us that it's a mystery, and the true identity and properties cannot be fathomed. Uh, oneness teaches that the one God has come in the flesh, has become invisible, He's revealed His true character, His power and authority, and He's, and, and then throughout the Old Testament, He's in relationship, He's in dialogue, all this, and, 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 the New Bible Dictionary even says that without the Christ event, no one would ever interpret it, the, the Old Testament as anything other but a unipersonal God. One person. Um, and we don't believe God is a, a what, necessarily, because God has explained it. I'm a who. I am a he. I am a me. And he, he says this in several different ways. We think in that context, God is not a what, but he is a who that speaks as a he. Um, we believe that God has come in the flesh. The one God, he's, becoming, he's become visible. Jesus makes the invisible God Visible. That's what we're trying to say. He's not just a visible manifestation of God. He is the incarnation of God, the unique one of God manifested of God in the flesh, the invisible God. Um, Colossians 2 and 9 in him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Uh, some scholars say that Colossians 2 and 9 is making an even more dramatic play on words as it did in Colossians 1 and 19 or Colossians 1 and 9. Because it's using it three times, all fullness deity, all fullness deity dwells in him bodily. The NRSV says in bodily formed. That's when we believe that God, our creator and our savior is fully revealed in Jesus Christ.
0: Finish yourself three minutes.
1: Okay. Um, John chapter 17 verse 5 is something that we, well, let me look, talk about preexistence real quick. Um, E.C. Dewick in the Print of Christian Eschatology, Martin Press, he says, when the Jews said something was predestined, he thought of it as already existing in a higher sphere of life. The world's history is thus predestined because it is already, in a sense, pre-existing and consequently fixed. This typically Jewish conception of pre- predestination may be distinguished from the Greek idea of pre-existence by the predominance of the thought of pre-existence in the divine purpose. And again, I want to stress, the Jewish idea of predestination uh, is not so much like the idea of Trinitarian pre-existence. And Jesus had glory with the fathers, glory I had with thee, that's parasoi par there with is in the dative that does not have to mean a locative sense uh as in a physical side by side the Lewinata lexicon confirmed that par in the dative and the accusative can refer to marking a participant whose viewpoint is relevant to an event in the sight of an opinion of or in the judgment of and i would say that the glory then you could say the glory which i had in your sight the glory which i had in your opinion the glory which i had in your judgment before the world was and And this is is my honest um, view that this helps us to avoid the problem of a physical location in the Godhead. Because that's what we're trying to say. If the Father is personally preexistent alongside of, as if there are two somethings to be beside of each other. Um, I I can't see this happening in time and space. The term before. Is exact Greek word to translate it before in Proverbs eight twenty three in the Septuagint. Speaking of wisdom, it says he established me before time was in the beginning, before he made earth, before he made the earth. I would also um, want to point out that Jeremiah was formed in the womb. Jeremiah one and five. He declared God declared Cyrus to be a one servant minute. a century before he was ever born. Abram was renamed Abraham. Before he even had one to send it, But the word Abraham means father of many. He can do this because he gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Um, and he had this glory as God manifest in the flesh in time and space. It was an anticipated prophetic glory. And it was no less real than it would have been when the anticipation was fulfilled.
0: Okay, thank you, James. I'm going to set the timer for ten minutes again. And Mike, if you're ready to go, please... Give us your 10-minute closing argument.
2: I'd like to thank you again, Chris, uh, for hosting and and moderating this debate and parsing through the questions. And and you too, Mr. Anderson, for your participation. You've been a a cordial gentleman this entire time, and I, I do appreciate that. In this debate, we have seen the utter incapability of Mr. Anderson to talk about texts that refer to the Son as the agent of creation, the Father's agent of creation. We didn't hear... 10 through 12. We did not hear a mention of that once from a multiplicity of texts.
0: Mike... Mike, I want to stop you for a second and give you twenty seconds back or so. I don't know, James, if you heard this, but he broke up. He did break up. So, uh, Mike, you started to say we did not hear, and then you broke out, broke off. So, could you start that part again? Uh,
2: okay.
1: I think it was like John one and ten or somewhere.
2: Okay, we we did not hear anything from Mister Anderson about Hebrews chapter one verses ten through twelve, which explicitly identify. The Father attributing to the Son, in the case of direct address, in the evocative case, creation. Psalm 102 is talking about a past tense event, the creation of the world. It's not prophetic. No, it's an indication of creation, that the Father has done this thing, and, excuse me, that that Yahweh has done this thing, and the Father says that it was the Son who did these things. It's very clear. And we didn't see JN touch on that. We didn't see him really tackle the grammar there. And we didn't see him really come full circle with some of these texts. There was a lot of appealing to scholars and philosophical ideas. This debate was supposed to be centered around the thesis that the son existed personally prior to the incarnation with the father. And the texts that were brought up in John, about 15 different texts, were never touched upon. So a multiplicity of points were not addressed. Points that were addressed were often given a surface-level response that amounted to nothing more than a dogmatic reaffirmation of Unitarianism. That assumption, Unitarianism, you heard it with your two ears when J.N. during the cross-examination repeatedly referred to the deity that was dwelling in the Son, as if the Son himself is not divine. When this Pentecostalism comes to the same uh, conclusion, the same assumption to the text of Scripture that um, the Unitarians do of, of all other stripes, the, the Watchtower, the Christadelphians, and every other Unitarian, and that uh, conclusion that they come to, come to is an inevitably low view of the Son of God. Um, When I asked Mr. Anderson um, who the O.T. Saints saw in light of the text that explicitly say no one has seen the Father, he told us the Son. Well, uh, what more proof do we need? If no one has seen the Father and they saw the Son, then how can we say that the Son did not exist? Isaiah saw the Son, says J.N. Well, Isaiah also tells us that the Word, that is, God the Word, or the Son, uh, in, my, in my terminology, was simply an unexpressed idea in the mind of God. This is what J.N. has reduced Jesus Christ to, an unexpressed thought, an impersonal entity. Um, when I talked about John 17:5, I gave a grammatical argument, and look... JN appealed to a fringe definition from a lexicon. The broad band of, of lexical data tells us that John seventeen five, with the para with the dative, indicates that the son was in the father's presence. I didn't say uh that the son is one being next to uh, the father who's another being. No. I simply said presence. Um, and that's exactly what the text tells us. Um JN's appeal that, uh, uh, this is somehow, um language that speaks that, that God, you know, calls things into existence as though they are and, and so forth. Look, the son is talking about something that he had in the past in the father's presence. He's not speaking of something that is a future verity alone. He's talking about something that he had that he's getting back. He's petitioning for a prior possession, that glory that he shared in the Father's presence, with the Father. So these are apples and oranges that are being compared here. Um, he brought up Granville Sharp's rule. Well, Granville Sharp's rule number six applies to Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, a text that I'm sure Jan is very familiar with. And you know, uh, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Well, Granville Sharp's rule number six tells us when the copulative tie. Uh, that is the, the conjunction there, and is used with the definite article, and you have uh, those three titles. It's indicative of different persons. Uh, what more evidence do we need that they're not the same person? Uh, during the cross-examination, I brought up a quote uh, by J.N., uh, a quote that he affirmed. That said, the father, quote, the father himself was incarnated through the womb of a woman. I ask you, uh, those listening to this debate, is that what we see in the Bible? The father was incarnated through the womb of a human woman? What text is that? Where do we find language like that? That is utterly devoid of any kind of scriptural backing. J.N. told us that the word is personal, but at the same time you told us that the word is a thought, an unexpressed thought in the mind of God, a plan. Well, he didn't really reconcile those things. Either the word is impersonal in an unexpressed thought in the mind of God, or the word is personal in God, just like John says. And so if the word is personal and with God, then we have two persons. And because God is personal... And the word was God, we know the word is personal. There's your two persons, Jan. And so there's a real problem reconciling whether or not the word is an unexpressed thought in the mind of God or whether or not the word is God himself in the person of God, the Son. When I asked Jan um, who Isaiah saw, again, uh, remember that he said that it was indeed the Son. And uh, the very same son who he believed did not exist prior to the Incarnation. Um, he made an appeal towards uh, of visions and dreams. But when I asked him who Moses saw, uh, which was obviously, according to number 12, not a vision or a dream, he didn't really give us an answer about that, and obviously we see why. Now, in closing, I mean, look, at. I ask you, my my oneness friends, uh, the scriptures are clear. Oneness Pentecostalism has gotten it wrong on the identity of God. That much is clear. Uh, JN has has failed to address the text I brought up in John. Has failed to attack uh, to really tell us whether or not the uh, Son of God was incarnated twice because of the identification of the incarnation in Philippians two seven. He's telling us that okay, yeah, this is during the incarnation, but then. <laughs> there's an identification of the Incarnation in the middle of the Incarnation. So he didn't really reconcile those, and he certainly didn't touch it on an exegetical basis that made any sense, just as i said in my opening statement, if you, if you go back and listen to that. And so, when this Pentecostalism has gotten the identity of God wrong, why would anybody place in any any way any hope in the oneness Pentecostal gospel? Salvation is not of works of any kind. Salvation is of the Lord. And the sole means of salvation is repentance and faith in the person and work of the Son of God. Being baptized will no more save a sinner than a spider web will stop a falling rock.
1: Amen.
2: But if we ourselves cast uh, ourselves on the mercy of God and the perfect work of the Son of God and we come to the Almighty God Bringing in the empty hand of faith, he is faithful and just to redeem us from our sin, And in his place, give us the very righteousness of the Son of God. The very Son of God who, prior to the Incarnation, was simply a thought. One minute left. It is not our obedience to the command of baptism that God uses to redeem. No, it is Christ's obedience. It is Christ's perfect righteousness that is the sole means of redemption by faith alone. And so in closing I, I I I pray that my oneness friends will will come to the true and saving knowledge of Jesus Christ uh, as he is the eternal Son of God
0: I thank you Mike <clears throat> with that um we've gone through the the whole debate. I I just want to say, personally, you know, over the past few weeks, trying to prepare for this, I've listened to a few debates, um, debates between Dr. White and Robert Sabin, I've listened to debates between Bruce Reeves and uh, uh, Roger Perkins, and I just want to say that uh, of the ones that I've listened to, including those two, um, I felt that this was the most, the, the one in which Kindness and respect was most reciprocated. Um, I, I honestly, to be quite frank, didn't expect it. Um, I think that you both uh, handled yourselves very calmly and very gently. Um, and I just want to thank you guys for doing thank that. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm. I was happy to. And, and also, I, I just want to say, I hope and, and maybe you guys can say, say whether or not you feel this was the case. In particular, I'm interested in your in your uh, opinion, James. But I hope that you guys feel as though I, I was fair, including yes. even in the questions that I that Extremely I put. Extremely fair. All right. Yeah. Yes. I appreciate that. Well, with that, um, let me just say one more time, thank you, and uh, uh, you guys have a great night. All right. Thanks. Well, there you have it, the first ever The Apologetics podcast debate. I think it went well. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, I think it was fascinating, and and I meant what I said at the end of that. I, I was very impressed by the candor exhibited by both my guests. It was quite a contrast from some of the other debates I've been listening to lately. So I thank them both. Um, I invited them to both to come back for round two at some point in the future, should they so choose. And Mike will be joining me uh, next week or the following week to do a sort of post-mortem, as we call it here, where I work. We're going to go over what went well, what didn't go well. We'll we'll play some clips and respond to to points and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, I hope that you'll join me for that next upcoming episode of the The Apologetics podcast. Until then.